Welcome to our preview of Partially Examined Life, Episode 254, Part 2. We just did an interview with Michael J. Sandel about his new book, The Tyranny of Merit. And after he left, we continued that discussion, getting very practical, very political. Let me play you two sections from near the beginning of that conversation. The first one, Seth initiates about how to have these public moral conversations that Sandel recommends. In the second, from a little later, where Wes initiates a discussion of high school as a metaphor for society, how could we change the values in a high school versus a society as a whole? We're in the situation where the so-called democratization of communication has actually centralized, when we talk about Twitter dominating discourse, right, or Facebook or these social media platforms. So we've got this centralization of location for where discourse happens this quote-unquote democratized discourse. And part of what I think is a response is it made me think of our Tocqueville episode that he said, what it is that makes America, America, and what it is that makes the American democracy work is associations. And I think that's something that's really suffered. But if you want to talk about like, where would be the practical place to get started where people could start having conversations, it has to start, I think, not at, at some global social media level where Everybody is an abstract entity without any personalization or individualization and where the platform can be dominated and manipulated. But like, think about starting conversations in your local community, like the churches and whatever the little interest groups that are. And it's like, that's always been the vibrant part of our experience, or at least it was when we all were growing up, right? I think before we had phones that were connected and these social media platforms. So I think part of the practical response has to be finding a way to get people to interact with each other in communal groups around whatever thread it is that ties them together, whether it's an interest in, you know, flower arrangements or a faith or what have you, and try to counteract a little bit the force of a universalizing, totalitizing social media presence. And I'm not saying that to be a Luddite. I'm just saying, talking about it, trying to figure out a practical way to do this. I mean, it is toxic. And I think it's social media may be what destroys civilization, not nuclear holocaust. <laughs> like, why haven't we contacted aliens? Because they reached that stage in civilization, which social media <laughs> devours civilization. And, but I'm conflicted about all of this. What I will say, and, and so I'm going to speak to my cynical side, even though I do have a more idealistic side as well. But... My cynical side says I get nervous when a philosopher writes a book and he's trying to solve some problems. And then you say, well, what's the solution? Well, let's become philosophers is the solution, the kind of self-serving result. And it's, it's there, of course, since the existence of philosophy. You know, it's like, what is the best life? What's going to make us happy? Oh, we should just be philosophers. That's what human flourishing is. And so at a political level, it's about deliberation about the common good. Or that's one more traditional version. I think things are mixed up now because there's another thread to the way this is talked about in contemporary terms. And that is this idea of discourse is socially constructing us. So we have to alter the discourse. People talk about let's have a difficult conversation, which does look often to me more like indoctrination than deliberation or the threat of shaming, the type of thing that happens on social media. So even though I think a lot about the elevation of public discourse and this sort of ideal, I guess when I hear it expressed, I think it's a rather weak solution, especially to the problem of status. I think this let's have a difficult conversation can be, I'm not saying it's always used this way, an insistence 
on recognizing critique without necessarily having a solution. This pragmatic turn has just always been, in my view, a poisonous part of our civic discourse. Let's have some discourse about this and try to gain some understanding, apart from even what we should do about it. So if you're having a race discussion, you don't necessarily have to jump to reparations. Like, let's have a convene some people to study whether that would work and what kind of reparations there should be. Like, maybe that should be what should come out of it. Not like, for sure, this is what the result should be. But if you think that we need to have some discussion about whether meritocracy is actually what we should be shooting for. I mean, I don't know if that is asking everybody to be a philosopher because that would actually be committing the meritocratic hubris. Like, unless you read this book, unless you become educated enough, I need to inform you that meritocracy is a problem. If you want to solve the status problem in society, think first about what it would mean to solve the status problem in high school, where there's jocks and there's nerds. And there's a very, very well-established hierarchy Some of it's based on charm or beauty or physical prowess or merely just the ability to be dominant, the ability to be more alpha than others. How do you solve the problem that some people are more attractive than others, for instance? That's a huge part of people's lives. Two things. First is, I want to just for the listeners, we're distinguishing between, let's call them economic remediations, which address the inequality and then the status remediation. So Wes's concern is around how do you address the difference in status, not the difference in economic equality, in a way that doesn't impinge upon somebody's rights? Is that fair, Wes? We're talking about the status piece is the real problematic piece, not the... Yeah, because I think that's what he's concerned about. Okay. You brought in a number of different kind of examples, and you're talking about beauty or athletic talent or something like that. But part of the way that those things get instantiated, but also addressed is in collectivities. So if you're a single person whose status is not recognized, that's one thing. And that's the loner, the outcast, if you want to use your high school example. But the lesson is, if you're a nerd, if you join together with the other nerds, right, then there may be a status inequality relative to the jocks, but you gain some kind of recognition and status. There's a way to reinforce that status within the group. So collectivity, I think, is the way that individuals who lack status can come together to gain status, first by mutual self-recognition and then by asserting that status externally. And one of the things that didn't come up in his book or part of the conversation, he's talking about this trend for the last 40 years since Reagan of technocratic focus on the market and value and all that. But you've seen the decline and the systematic dismantling of labor unions, for example. So if you want to talk about dignity of labor, how do we dignify labor? Part of the way that labor used to maintain its dignity is through its collective action, through unions, which not just established the basis for economic protections and assurances, but created an identity and a positive identity that conferred status. So I think that's how the status dialogue has to start. I like this considering at some length this high school thing, because on the one hand, it's more difficult to actually change the culture in a high school than the culture at large, because of course the culture in a high school is going to reflect what people are saying about, say, beauty in the culture at large. It can't affect standards of beauty on that level. But on the other hand, because they're high schoolers, you can do actually do more invasive things. At my kids' high school, I have not noticed any of that kind of stuff. Obviously, there are cliques and whatever, but like it's so different than Mean Girls, than Breakfast Club, than what we grew up with. And I don't know if it's this really focusing on anti-bullying measures and making this not just a, you know, we're going to come down hard on any bullying, have a zero tolerance policy, but 
like indoctrinating them with this of be nice to people, kind of a forced breakfast club experience. You could, you know, force people as part of kind of character development. You can make kids have conversations that you could never make adults have. But that is kind of what I think Sandel would be going for is, again, it's this public deliberation. And, you know, as far as standards of beauty, for instance, like that is what all this stuff about, about representation is. It's not a matter of trying to get rid of status or get rid of beauty judgments, but you can change a little, at least, or you can try to change the character about what they are. So, like we've talked about in our racism episode, just does beautiful amount in a, in a woman mean straight hair and white skin and stuff? No, we can promote other standards of beauty. So at least you get pluralistic. It's not that you get rid of, and then people take it on a thing at a time. Weight is the, a huge, thing i'm sure we'll have a pretty much pop episode on it at some point but like these various shows and things trying to make it so yes you can be heavy but also be beautiful and you know there might be an uphill a more of an uphill thing than the race one about that but there are things one can do without just saying don't value anything anymore i think the idea of altering beauty standards and standards about obesity or i see that as very unrealistic and and utopian and I think most people would agree with me and the, you know, the people on the left who embrace these sort of ideas. I mean, the, the burden of proof, I think, is on them to show that this is realistic because on its face, it seems it seems rather unrealistic. Let's take the thesis that it was different at one point in the past. If you can admit that at some point it was different and that it's changed. And he does a pretty good job in the book, I think, of tracing some of the evolution, like you say, the rhetoric. But it's like the burden of proof isn't that it's possible to change it, Wes. I think that the burden of proof is how can you consciously instantiate or control a discourse in order to change that perception as opposed to it happening organically or decentralized or whatever. I don't know. That would be my response would be to say it's not a question of can it change? Yes, it can change. But is it something you can engineer? And that I'm not sure about. Well, it, it may actually be very complicated, even if we acknowledge that, as you say, things change, knowing the cause and being able to control that change to a particular way. Yeah, I think the right word is engineer it. That's a good open question, right? And to some level, it's one of the criticisms in the book, right, is that a way of talking about the hubris is the notion that we're in more control over these things than we think we are. And that we're going to engineer the prosperity of everybody by pick your solution, by having technocrats run everything, by having everybody just participate in a meritocracy. That'll make the world more just and more equitable. That's one of the criticisms of his book, that that just doesn't work. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening.